This is the Inclusion Think Tank podcast brought to you by New Jersey Coalition for Inclusive Education, NJCIE, where we talk about inclusive education, why it works, and how to make it happen. On today's episode, I welcome my guest, Marianne Joseph. Marianne is a National Board Certified Teacher who has spent more than 40 years in the classroom throughout the nation in both special education and general education settings. She is a teacher leader as a current college professor and a former special education consultant with the New Jersey Department of Education. During our conversation, we discuss some important characteristics of what makes someone a leader and the three essential leadership components of inclusive education. I would like to welcome everyone back to another episode of the Inclusion Think Tank podcast brought to you by New Jersey Coalition for Inclusive Education. I am your host, Arthur Aston, and I am very happy to welcome my guest on the show today, Marianne Joseph. So Marianne, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad to uh, speak with you again and to have you on as a guest today. Uh, my pleasure, Arthur. It's good to talk with you. Yes. Uh, so I start off every episode by asking a form of this question, which is to ask my guests to introduce themselves. So can you share a little bit about uh, your story and how you became interested in the world of inclusive education? So my story goes way back, Arthur. Um, there's um, over 40 years of experience that I've clocked in this area of uh, education. Um, leaving uh, high school in the 70s to pursue a degree in special education at Southern Connecticut State, at that time college, now a university. I was always interested in teaching, but I wondered what it would be like to teach kids with disabilities. And what would that job look like? And so I spent time in education preparing to teach. And as I did that, um, I realized that I was getting to know a lot about disabilities. In the 70s, we were all about labeling kids. Kids were kids with um, cognitive disabilities. Kids were kids with physical disabilities. We just labeled lots of things um, in regard to what kids might need or kids had gaps in. And um, I started doing that, being able to see different kinds of kids, worked with a lot of different kinds of kids at the Cerebral Palsy Center in New Haven, in schools in New Haven. But I started wondering what I was going to do with them once I figured out what was wrong with them or what was right with them. Um, so I went over to the Department of Elementary Education. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm a student in the special education department. Can I take some classes in elementary ed? And believe it or not, that was not a common thing to happen in the 70s. They said, oh, no, you, you get your classes in special ed. That, that's another building down on the other side of campus. And um, after a lot of conversation and adding additional classes to my five-class load to figure out not just what disabilities meant or what kids needed in terms of their gaps, but what they might learn that would be the education that everybody else was learning. Uh, mostly areas of reading and math, but I did that so that I could know as a teacher what to plan for, what to teach those kids in rooms that weren't in the same rooms as kids without disabilities. That's where we were in the 70s. 
But that's where my first questions began. Wow, that's really, um, it's really great to, to hear that you were, um, you know, interested, like right away when you were, uh, you know, taking college courses and, and just really interested in, in seeing how you can um, help those students with disabilities just to, um, like you said, to learn like everybody else and, and to, even though they were in separate classrooms uh, back then and, uh, you know, you, you saw the, the need to, uh, you know, make that happen and to uh, help them out. And uh, I like what you said to find out what was right and, and what could, uh, you know, what they could do and, and just really uh, focus on that and, and make it happen. Um, I always, I love hearing uh, the beginnings of uh, people's uh, journey into uh, the world of inclusive education and to just see how, uh, see how they got to where they are. And like you said, that's uh, over 40 years ago. And, um, you know, it's just really, really cool. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. It was just a, an honest quest uh, yeah. to try and make classrooms the best they could. Uh, for kids with disabilities. Yeah. Um, so my next question is, how would you define inclusive education? Uh, what does inclusive education mean to you? Well, I think the first word that comes to mind is difficult. I think inclusive education is difficult. Uh, my role right now is a consultant, and I work with school districts to try to include kids with disabilities to try to build inclusive programming. But I have to tell you, it's not easy. It takes boldness, it takes patience, it takes lots of different pieces. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's hard to do or have inclusive education. That's the first word that comes to mind. The second word that comes to mind is belonging. We want everybody to belong. We talk about these communities that we have as schools. We talk about schools as families. In fact, uh, there's a school down in South Jersey that has a big banner as you walk in that says, we are family. And that's what schools are building these days. Um, but we want it in an authentic way, right? Not in a mascot way, not in a, oh, it's so nice to take care of this person who looks different way, but a real true authenticity. So words that are key to me when I think about inclusion is that it's difficult, is that it's about belonging, and is that it's about authenticity. Those three things are important. I love the authenticity part. That is, uh, it's so true. It's not just uh you know, it's not that, that we're just doing it because it's the thing that that's in right now, the cool thing to do, um, you know, to really be authentic about it and to really, um, you know, just be true to, to what it is and, and really uh, bringing a sense, like you said, a sense of family, a sense of belonging and um, just true inclusion. And, uh, you know, that that's really, uh, really great. I love that you mentioned the uh, the banner that hangs at the school. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I love that. I just love that that banner. It's a great banner. Yeah, it really does. And that really helps set the tone for, you know, when you go in there and you see it, um, you know, I'm sure it really helps set the tone for what, you know, what that community means. And and that's, I, I think, uh, the other thing about it is community. And, and, you know, like you said, to go along with the belonging, um, 
you know, it builds a, a sense of community and togetherness for everybody. Well, you know, Arthur, you make me wonder, you know, people will be listening to this podcast and thinking, what's my next step? What can I do? Um, again, I work with a lot of schools. I call a lot of schools. I talk to a lot of people. And one of the things that has started to impress me is the way that people answer their phones. Uh, not the part that says, we have currently changed our um, extensions. Please listen carefully to the following options. That part always cracks me up because it seems like everybody's changing their options. But the, um, the thing that really uh, hits me uh, is you'll open up to a school district that will say, where all children read, where all children can learn, uh, committed to quality and improving learning for all students. These kinds of statements may sound cliche, but they really set a tone. So we get introduced to a district in that first phone message or the first way that we're welcomed into their family or into their community. So it is true, there's a lot of signs you can buy and Etsy's making a lot of money on things that tell us what inclusion might look like. But the truth is, in order to live it, we have to get it into our practice. So even the way that we answer our phones, the way that we sign our emails becomes a way that we can spread this mission, the importance of being inclusive. That is so very true. And I, I love what you said about um, the last part of signing your emails like that, um, you know, the little quotes that people have in, at the end of their signatures, like those are really, uh, you know, you might think people don't pay attention to it, but a lot of people do. And as you said, when you make a phone call someplace, you know, how they, how they start that conversation off with the, you know, with the voicemail, that is really, uh, really true. And I, I think it, for me, I, I would say, it's, um, you know, kind of just because it happens, I guess, so often, as you said, it might sound cliche, some of them, uh, because you hear those uh, phrases often and, and all the time, but it, it really does, it goes in, uh, for me, it, it goes in and it really does make a difference in, in how you uh, set, sets the tone for, uh, you know, for that experience with that uh, school or, or that area, wherever you may be calling. <clears throat> everything has to be complicated we can make small steps mm -hmm. in our personal uh, patterns that can really influence in a big way so mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing yeah yeah yes uh so this season of our podcast we are uh focusing on school leadership and the role that uh those in leadership positions uh, can play in creating an inclusive environment in the school. Uh, can you share with us some important characteristics of what makes someone a leader? Oh, wow. Um, you know, there's a great book out um, that I, I, I want to reference, and I, I realize everybody's auditory as they listen to this, but this book is an easy title to remember. It's called Reimagining special education. I'll say it again, reimagining special education. And it's written by two women, Jenna Ruffo, R-U-F-O, Julie Costin, C-A-U-S-T-O-N. So Ruffo and Costin have generated a great conversation around reimagining special education. And as I read through this book, and I've read through it a few times, my puppy is a little dog-eared at this point. 
Um, it reminded me of the importance of the role of a leader. You know, um, we're faced here in New Jersey with a mandatory responsibility. It's not, it's not something that we can choose to do or not do these days. New Jersey's ranking as a state in the national rankings regarding inclusion is a sobering last, last in terms of 50, not 50, but 52 territories and states in the United States. Leaders in schools today face this data, face this stark reality in a way that calls us to action. We have to do something about this. So when we talk about leaders and inclusion here, we don't have a choice anymore. We need to reimagine special education in terms of 21st century learning, in terms of the civil right that students have to be in classrooms that are inclusive, where they are genuinely included as a part of that family and belong in that family. So leaders, leaders need to be aware of this huge responsibility laid before us that things need to change and change in New Jersey toward inclusion. So what makes a leader with that kind of stark reality facing us? Leaders have to have clear expectations, really define and understand what they are looking for in their schools so that they can build environments that are indeed inclusive. Leaders have to be able to provide feedback that dedicates all to the mission, not just one or some, but really leads with an authority that says we are on this journey together. And that feedback that they provide in the hallway as a part of a teacher observation at a board meeting has to be clearly connected to this important task of being inclusive in New Jersey schools. Leaders also have to believe that change can happen. They have to believe that they are part of that change and um, find the change makers to make that work so that they can see and celebrate the change. Being a leader means knowing that there is work to be done and rolling your sleeves up and getting to the work so that we can make a difference. Students are that important and students deserve the education that we offer to everyone as a civil right. That's great. I love the belief, like they have to believe um, and, and feedback too. I think that is, uh, <clears throat> I think that is a really, really great, uh, great thing to mention. Um, but it's, the message there is not to be passive. You can't put a statement forward and say, this is what we believe, and then not live it every day. And again, the living it every day is in the small things we do in, and the big things we do. It's in the way we hire. It's in the way we organize our schools. It's in the way we staff. It's in the way we build classrooms. It's in the materials we buy. It's in all of those little pieces but it's also in the way we say hello and good job in the hallways. So leaders' feedback is what keeps the wheels rolling toward the vision that that leader has. Otherwise, everybody just passively puts a check mark next to something that they theoretically believe but don't see in action. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as it, as it says, it starts at the top. 
um, you know, so for the leaders of the school districts to really uh, believe in what they are, you know, what they're putting out there, I think it's, um, you know, it's really important to making everyone else uh, come along and, and join that, uh, join that journey of uh, making an inclusive environment in the school. So that's um, really, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that we touched on that and, um, you know, and to really share that information. Yes. My last question um, for you is, um, again, for uh, following along with the previous question about leadership, uh, what would you say are three essential leadership components of inclusive education? Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I've had the pleasure, uh, the absolute pleasure, of working with some districts um, in areas of reform and change. Um, I give them credit um, for being ready for the change. But in each of these areas, the first characteristic that just jumps off the page is that leaders are bold. Leaders are bold. So we talk about leaders like in Haddonfield, New Jersey, Carmen Henderson, who boldly drew a plan to change the organizational style of programming in the district. This did not come without questions, without maybe some critical eyes, but that boldness cut through because she, she was clearly dedicated to her mission. Look at a district like Cherry Hill, huge, 12th largest in the entire state. Again, the boldness of the director to be able to clearly know that they saw what could be better and move toward that goal, never losing sight never losing sight and keeping the target clear on what change could look like. This is a characteristic I see, I see often, this boldness. And I, I don't see often, I'm sorry, that's what I mean. I don't see often. Oftentimes it's easy to shrink away from a bold step forward. It's hard sometimes to stand out there on your own and wait till everybody catches up. But leaders, are bold. Leaders are bold enough to say what we're doing is good, but it can be better, or what we're doing really needs a change. Those kinds of things, when we see them in leaders, they stand out. Um, we see them on a national front, right? We see leaders who rise to the fore. To the fore. We say to ourselves, gee, um, how do they have the, the guts to do that? Um, why are they so committed? Uh, we see some of these leaders rise to the fore in the, the turmoil. And we, they capture our, our imagination. They capture our awe and wonder. They make us rethink ourselves and what we are here for. That's the kind of boldness I see in some of the places that are willing to really take make the next step forward. So the first thing I would say is leaders are bold. You know, I, I list or I name two people, um, but there are more. And this is in my small world. So I don't mean to be exclusive in any way, but I do mean to say that they're really out there. 
So I share the leaders that I talked about in order to say, I'm not saying this in a vacuum. I'm saying it because we see and can find people that have made these bold steps. And for those of you who are in education, maybe some of you are those bold leaders. For those of us who've been around education for a while, that too, we've found those leaders, right? But those kinds of leaders, they are the bold ones who step forward because they know where they're going and they want people to catch up with them. Uh, the second thing I would say, um, and I say this from my passion, my place of passion um, as a former employee in the New Jersey Department of Education, um, leaders need real knowledge, not fake knowledge, not somebody else's knowledge, not book knowledge, but they need real knowledge of the New Jersey law and code. I might go so far as to say not just the New Jersey law and code, but the federal law and code, the statutes, what we live under. Though code has always been sort of a beginning of where we can go and what we can do for kids, it isn't meant to be exclusive like the only thing we can do. It's meant to give us direction. Leaders who don't, weren't well grounded in those foundational people often get themselves mixed up, maybe don't take steps forward that are cemented, maybe build a structure that has fractures or cracks in it. Before you can be bold, you have to be knowledgeable. You have to know enough so that when you're making changes, you're making them on a strong footing and foundation. The other thing is it's hard to argue when the work comes from such a good and clear direction as our IDEA code and our NJ administrative code. So I'd say the second thing that leaders really need is knowledge of the law and code. Now, there's a lot of ways to get that. You know, you can certainly study it. There's classes at Rutgers, I teach one of them. I'm sure a lot of our universities have law and code classes. But you find that in the community as well. There's some really neat things happening in our counties where people come together and they ask themselves hard questions about the law and code. It's community that kind of brings life to the stark statutes that we can read that sometimes don't make much sense or don't give us real fruitful ways to embody the code. So it's the knowledge of law and code, but the application comes alive in talking about it, talking through it. I love doing this in places that want to change. There's some young leaders out there that um, give me a call from time to time. Um, Tiffany and Mount Holly is one, thinking of Katie. Those people want to make a change, but they want to be sure that they're walking in the right way. And so this knowledge blonde code is something they check in on. Again, that's built in community. It's built with people who've been around a while. Well, I already confessed to being been around since the inception of IDEA in the 70s, right? But um, we need this real knowledge blonde code. We need to flesh it out, think it out, so that how we move forward is solidly grounded in the truth that national IDEA and statewide NJAC gives us the ability to do. 
So going back, leaders are bold. Leaders need real knowledge so that they can make strong foundational change. And then leaders need to find success in small moments. They need to realize that change needs at least three years sometimes to come to true fruition. Doesn't happen overnight. And if it does happen overnight, good for you. And if you're, you've been the recipient of that, um, you're lucky because it's hard work listening to self-change or leading. And leading to strength means that we have to take some heart in small successes. I work with leaders who sometimes are frustrated that everybody doesn't come with at the same time, that there's questions, that we find a gap, that we find something we didn't plan for. We can get overwhelmed with that and say, forget it. We're not going to move forward. It's just too hard. Or we can take time each day to find a success in the small moments. And here, you know, I want to think about the kids that are sometimes a challenge. They're hard to handle. They're hard to improve. We have to be honest and say that. This isn't easy work. Kids come with lots of need. Sometimes it feels overwhelming to figure out how we can actually provide inclusion for them. But if we can take small successes, if we don't have to do all of it, take, as they say, small bites of the elephant instead of trying to swallow the whole thing, maybe what we can do is be brief success in the small successes. I'm thinking of a school with a student who was challenged by some behavior regulation. This little boy would often just have meltdowns, meltdowns that involved throwing things, meltdowns that involved breaking the glass window of the door that separated his classroom from the hallway. And folks, you know, those have inlaid wire in them. So breaking that glass is pretty hard to do. This leader didn't give up. Leader did not say, okay, this student needs to be somewhere else. Even though the safety of the students was his priority, we certainly emptied the classroom while helping the student regulate with lots of dedicated staff. He shared with parents that his desire was to include this form and that we're going to provide support that would make this work. You can imagine not everybody being on the same page there, but in a supportive community where a mission has been established that we all belong, that we are family, Boy went on to be included in that classroom and a subsequent general ed classroom the next school year with the dedication of staff, students, and teachers who were able to put the pieces together. This is what I mean by finding success in a small moment. Did he still have a plan that sometimes gave him time out of the classroom? Sure. Did he still have people that came into the classroom and a special signal to have that be an immediate call to action? Sure. But instead of the easier result of putting him somewhere else, this success, even though it was hard to do, continued to build and breed a success that was monumental certainly for this young man, but perhaps for all the students and the teachers and the staff of that school. So leaders are bold. They know where they're going. As they know where they're going, they settle soundly on the law and code that gives them direction to do that. But they also find success. 
I was really a class optimist in high school. For those people that know me, they recognize my voice on this podcast. They'll probably recognize that as one of the ways that I see life. But I will say this as well. Sometimes I think voting, being voted class optimist in high school is the one thing that brings me back to this work every single day with a way of looking at what works, not a way of looking at what didn't work. Spend time with lots and lots of districts who tell me what doesn't work. Here's the truth. You don't have a choice. Inclusion has to be something that we are all wrapped around. As leaders, it is mandatory and necessary. Told you about the battle in New Jersey. So we can't keep finding reasons that doesn't work. We've got to find the ways it's good work. And we've got to build those moments so we really can make a change. Make a change in heaven and Jersey, make a change for schools. Yes. I um I love finding success in the little things. And I think that is uh true for uh, the work of inclusion and just in life in general. <laughs> I think that's a great advice. And as it you said, being advice. the optimist. There's rough days, Arthur. I got to go with it. Yes. But, you know, good that we remember the good days so that yes. we wake up the next morning. That's right. Yeah, that is. That is such uh, just great life advice in general to uh, <laughs> celebrate and find success in the, in the little things. And, um, you know, I, I like you said, it doesn't happen overnight, you know, this inclusion, uh, you know, it doesn't, it's not a big overnight success kind of thing that you'll see, but in the small things you can see that, you know, this school year, you're not where you were last school year and not even last month and just to uh, keep moving forward and, um, you know, just just keep uh, keep looking toward that end goal and, and knowing that uh, you're headed in the right direction and like you said, to focus on um, what's going right and what works instead of like what, you know, the things that don't work. And, uh, you know, you tried it, it didn't work, but you have to keep moving forward and, uh, you know, try other things. And, and it's uh, all going to work out, although it may be slow and it may seem slow, um, you know, the process and the journey, but it's, uh, it's all worth it in the end uh, to make sure that everybody is included and, uh, you know, a part of the whole uh, community and the family that is uh, the school and, and all of that. So, yeah, that yeah. was really yeah. great. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Yes. So, uh, Marianne, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed, um, you know, this conversation. I enjoyed uh, speaking with you uh, a few weeks ago to uh, plan this, this conversation and, um, uh, a lot of the schools that you mentioned uh, are in the area that I grew up in, so I'm very familiar oh. with uh, the work <laughs> that they're doing and the uh, you know the work that that they have done. I was actually in a, a school in Cherry Hill yesterday. Oh um, wow! Yeah, at Cherry Hill High School uh, East. So oh, okay. uh, <laughs> there you go. yeah, so I'm very familiar with these uh, with the districts in this uh, Camden County area of uh, New Jersey. So it's. Uh, great to see and, and to hear of the work that they uh, that those districts and so many other districts are doing to, um, you know, make inclusion a, a, a true and authentic uh, experience in their districts for their students and the families. Um, you know, I, I, again, I love what you said about the being authentic to it. That is, uh, 
so true and, and so important with, um, again, not just in the work of inclusion, but in life in general. <laughs> it's just great life. Well, we'll discover life lessons in our Yes. <laughs> yes. It was a pleasure talking with you. Um, I hope you hear my passion. I think that, um, I, I think that we, you know, we're all put here for purpose um, on this life. Um, I think the conversation around inclusion is, is really purposeful. Um, it wakes me up in the morning. It keeps me up at night sometimes, but it certainly gives me energy. Um, it's a passion that I, I like to share uh, with those who are ready to do the hard work of lead. Um, we have a call to action in New Jersey, right? I really want to stress that this isn't just a nice conversation. It's so important, leaders to really start thinking about what the future can be. Um, small changes, little steps forward. This is what we need to do in New Jersey. Not, we can't stand on the, way, on the, on the sidelines anymore and wait for something to happen, to make it happen. Um, so those kinds of conversations, uh, we should be at the ready for, take advantage of and uh, move forward with real conviction uh, so that we can do more for those with disabilities in New Jersey. Um, so that we can lead, uh -huh. so that we can be at a place that's not at the bottom of the path and uh, say that New Jersey can make a difference. Yes, yeah. I agree. It's, um, it's been great talking with you and uh, thank you again for your time. And you take I care. Will, yes, you too, and I'll be in touch soon. All right, goodbye. <laughs> great. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. We thank you for listening to this episode of the Inclusion Think Tank podcast. This podcast is brought to you by New Jersey Coalition for Inclusive Education, NJCIE. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media at NJCIE. Until next time.